Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Serial Killer Podcast, the podcast dedicated to serial killers. Whatever, what they did and how. Episode 161. I am your Norwegian host, Thomas Rosaland Weiborg Thun. As of recording this episode, we have entered December, and thus, Christmas celebrations are soon upon us. It's not just Christians that celebrate holidays in December. Far from it. But since my audience is over 90% from the West, I thought it apt to frame tonight's episode this way. The story of Christmas takes place in the Middle East. For this reason, I wanted to share a story of a serial killer from what people back in Victorian times called the Orient. It was not easy to find such a tale, but I succeeded in the end. For the story to fill an entire episode, I also wanted to truly flesh out the setting for you, dear listener, and add some flavorful content of actual history in the mix. So join me as we travel south, both back in time and away from the cultures of the West. If you feel like imagining yourself on a magic carpet, with the nighttime stars shining above, and only the flickers of oil-lit lamps below, be my guest. In the ancient city of Marrakesh, a killer is on the loose. He murders young girls and women, both for pleasure and for monetary gain. At least thirty-six times he manages to escape justice, until he finally faces his execution. This is the tale of none other than the arch-murderer of Marrakech, Hajj Muhammad Mesvevi. 
Enjoy. As always, I wanted to publicly thank my elite TSK Producers Club. Their names are Amy, Andrea, Boo, Brenda, Cassandra, Christy, Cody, Colleen, Connor, Corbin, Fawn, James G, James H, James S, Jared, Jennifer, Johnny, Juliet, Caitlin, Kathy, Kevin, Kylie, Libby, Lisa, Lisbeth, Marilyn, Meow, Nick, Operation BP, Russell, Sabina, Skortnia, Scott, Shauna, Tim, Tony, Trent, and Val. You are the backbone of the Serial Killer Podcast, and without you, there would be no show. You have my deepest gratitude. Thank you. I am forever grateful for my elite TSK Producers Club, and I want to show you that your patronage is not given in vain. All TSK episodes will be available 100% ad-free to my TSK Producers Club on patreon.com slash theserialkillerpodcast. No generic ads, no ad reads, no jingles. I promise. And of course, if you wish to donate $15 a month, that's only $7.50 per episode, you are more than welcome to join the ranks of the TSK Producers Club too. So don't miss out and join now. Imagine, if you will, dear listener, the northwestern edge of the great continent of Africa. Bordering on Algeria to the east, the Atlantic Ocean to the west, western Sahara to the south, and the Strait of Gibraltar to the north, lies the country of Morocco. It is a country with a very long history one of the few African countries whose borders were not drawn by the European colonial powers. The country's capital city is Rabat, and it, like Tangiers, Casablanca and Saleh, is a coastal city. Morocco, unlike many Mediterranean cities, does not owe its economy historically solely from trade from the sea. In Morocco's interior, lies the great desert of Sahara, and with it the ancient trade routes originating as far away as Asia, and the greatest hub for trade at the northwestern end of the trans-Saharan trade routes were the great cities of Fez and its main rival, Marrakech. Marrakech today is Morocco's fourth largest city with nearly one million inhabitants. Back in the very first decade of the 20th century, it was far less modern and very similar to how it had been since it was established by Islamic rulers 
in 1062 AD. The city was founded by Yusuf ibn Tashfin, leader of the Moroccan Al-Muravid Empire. He is also considered one of the most prominent leaders of the country, promoting an Islamic system in the whole country, Muslim Spain and the Maghreb. Marrakech became the capital of the Al-Murabid dominion. A new religious movement from the high Atlas Mountains, a region called Almohads, seized the city of Marrakech from the Almoravid in 1147, and the Almohad caliph Abd al-Mumin refused to enter the city because he claimed the mosques in Marrakech were not correctly oriented. A few years later, Abd al-Mumin commissioned the construction of two mosques. One is the renowned Qutubia Mosque, which was inspired by Al-Andalus, a.k.a. Andalusian Islamic architecture. This is why it is very similar to the bell tower of the Seville Cathedral. In 1230, al-Mamun of the new dynasty, the Marinids, captured Marrakech. Shortly after, his brother, Abu Yusuf Yagub, forced the Almohads to retreat to the Atlas Mountains, and the Marinids ruled over Marrakech during the following two centuries. During this period, the city was slightly forgotten, as the dynasty moved the capital to Fez. The dynasty of the Marinids was replaced by the Watasids, and these were expelled by the Sharifian families. The Sharifs are descendants of the Prophet Muhammad's cousin Ali and his daughter Fatima. The Alawite dynasty, which comes from the word Ali, is actually the current Moroccan royal family. The Sardians made Marrakech their capital during the 16th century. The most famous architecture from this period includes the Bab Dukula Mosque, the Ben Yusuf Madrasa, built in 1570, and the Sardian tombs. The 19th century saw increasing instability and the progressive encroachment of European powers on Morocco. The French conquest of neighboring Algeria began in 1830. Moroccan troops were rushed up to defend Tlemcen which they considered part of their traditional sphere. But the French captured Tlemcen in 1832 and drove the Moroccans out. Sultan Abd al-Rahman supported the continued guerrilla resistance in Algeria led by Abd al-Qadir al-Jashari. The French attacked Morocco directly in 1844 and forced a humiliating defeat on Sultan Abd al-Rahman. Abdul Rahman's successor, Sultan Muhammad IV of Morocco, was confronted immediately by the Spanish War of 1859-60, and yet another humiliating treaty. While the Sultan was busy dealing with the Spaniards in Ceuta, the Rahmana tribe in the south rebelled and laid a tight siege on the city of Marrakech, which was broken by Muhammad IV as late as 1862. Muhammad IV and his successors, Hassan I and Abd al-Aziz, moved the court and capital back to Fez, demoting Marrakech 
once again to a regional capital under a family khalifa. With the arrival of increasing European influence, cultural as well as political, in the Alawite court in Fez, Marrakech assumed its role as an opposition centre to westernization. Until 1867, individual Europeans were not permitted to enter the city unless they acquired special permission from the Sultan. The colonial encroachments had led to a shift in the traditional relationship between the Mahsen, a.k.a. the Alawite Sultan's government, and the semi-autonomous rural tribes. To extract more taxes and troops from them, the Alawite Sultan began directly appointing lords known as Qaids over the tribes, a process that accelerated in the 1870s with the loss of customs revenues in Moroccan ports to colonial powers after 1860. After the death in May 1900, of the Grand Vizier Ahmed ibn Musa, a.k.a. Ba Ahmed, Morocco's true regent, the young Alawite Sultan Abd al-Aziz, tried to handle matters himself. But a teenage sultan who preferred to surround himself with European advisers was unduly susceptible to their influence and soon alienated the population. The country careened into the throes of anarchy tribal revolts, and plots of feudal lords, not to mention European intrigues. Unrest mounted with the devastating famine in 1905-1907 and humiliating concessions at the 1906 Algeciras Conference. The entry of the French troops alarmed other European powers. Spanish troops quickly expanded their territorial enclave in the north, while Germany dispatched a gunboat to Agadir. At the height of this crisis, the dismissed El Glaoui brothers approached German diplomats in Essaouira, offering to detach southern Morocco with Marrakech as its capital and turn it into a separate German protectorate. But the offer was rebuffed as a French-German accord was about to be signed in November 1911, resolving the Agadir crisis. The resolution of the Agadir crisis cleared the way for the Treaty of Fez on the 30th of March 1912, imposing a French protectorate on Morocco, in essence making it a French colony. So it was, dear listener that in our story, Marrakech is still largely free of European influence and still independent of France. Its buildings were mostly made of sun-baked clay, what to many Americans are known as adobe buildings. For the most part, these buildings were square with a flat roof. Some were several stories high, but for the most part buildings seldom reached more than three stories high. The adobe walls made sure that the scorching desert sun's heat was kept at bay, but it was still quite common for people to sleep on their roofs at night to escape the still rather hot air inside of their houses. The streets were not illuminated by electrical lights. Mostly they stayed dark during the night, 
especially the alleys. Crime was quite common, but horror of what would occur over a period of a few years exceeded the imagination of most everyone. It is dusk, and the streets are mostly empty. The air is still hot from the daytime sun, and very dry. Dust hangs in the air over the footsteps of the young girl, walking home from a relative she has helped at the great bazaar. She is walking alone, something the mullahs in the mosques would frown at had they known. The hijab was at the time not common in Marrakech. Its prominence outside of Arabia would not come for many decades. So the girl's hair is long and flowing free from her head. Her hair is dark, her skin light brown, and her eyes a deep brown, and she is wearing a bright-colored long dress. She looks happy as she is walking home in the pleasant evening atmosphere, and perhaps she is humming a song to herself. On her belt is a small pouch where she keeps the few coins her relative gave her for helping out at the bazaar. Behind her, a man steps out from an alley and starts to follow her. As the girl decides to walk through a dark alley, a shortcut on the way home, the man hits her hard over the head from behind with a rock. She immediately passes out and does not notice the man carrying her away. When the girl awakes, she is lying on a dirty rug in a room dimly lit by an oil lamp. A man sits close by watching her. A woman can be seen behind him scurrying back and forth in what appears to be the kitchen. The girl is stiff with fright and confusion. The man laughs as she asks him to please take her home. Then he starts to undress. As he stands in front of her completely naked, the other woman behind him comes into the room and picks up its clothes and sternly tells the girl to remove her own clothes. The girl at first refuses, but the woman slaps her hard and tells her again to do as she is told. If not, the woman threatens to kill her. Sobbing, the girl slowly and shyly slips out of her dress and removes her plain undergarments. She is a slender girl, and she tries to cover herself with her hands. But the woman slaps them away and tells her to let the man enjoy her nakedness. The man, who until now has only been chuckling a bit to himself, gruffly tells the woman to leave them. The woman immediately does as she is told and walks out of the room, closing a curtain behind It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have our burdens to bear, dear listener, and as a man, I was, and am, often told to suck it up, keep calm, and carry on. Normally, good advice in many situations, but never talking about what bothers you is not healthy. Therapy is great to get things off your chest, to vent, and best of all, to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Everyone needs someone to talk to, even psychopaths, even your humble host. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash serialkiller today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash serial killer. When the woman is gone, the man approaches the girl and forces her onto her back. The girl is panicked and shouts to him that she is a virgin and to please let her go. The man seems only more aroused by her pleas and brutally forces her legs apart and forces his large erect penis into her vagina. The pain is extreme, and the girl howls and shrieks as her hymen is ripped open and her dry vaginal canal is torn. Blood spills out and functions as a sort of lube for the man who increases his movements. The pain is constant, but less extreme than the initial offense. The girl cries, moans, and begs the man to please stop and let her go. After what seems like an eternity, the man ejaculates inside her with a grunt and lies on top of her, coating her in his sweat, which smells rank. The girl is close to throwing up, but manages to hold it in. She weeps quietly. The man sits up and wipes himself off with a rag. He leaves the room, and she can hear him tell the woman to fix the girl. After a moment, the woman comes in and drags the girl to the corner. There she chains the girl fast to a ring in the wall. She also tells the girl to be quiet and not to try anything stupid. Then she, too, is gone, leaving the girl alone with her thoughts. The next day, the woman brings the girl a cup of water and some gruel. The girl is almost frantic with thirst, and she gulps it all down not knowing that would be her only cup of water that day. She is left alone for several hours until dusk, when the man comes home from his work as a cobbler. Dinner is ready for him, made by the woman who the girl has learned is named Anna, and the pair eats in the kitchen. None of them even looks at the girl. There is a bucket next to her, and the girl after having gotten no reply other than a finger pointing at the bucket and asking to use the toilet, relieves herself in it. 
The smell is rank, and it is obvious that she is not the first one to use the bucket. After dinner, the woman comes into the room and removes the ill-smelling bucket and frees the girl from the wall. She is led to the dirty carpet again as the man enters. The girl whimpers and again starts to plead for mercy. None is forthcoming. Again she is brutally raped. Again she bleeds, and the pain and humiliation is bringing the girl close to insanity. But she thinks of her family, and she holds on. Then she feels a sharp pain in her breast. It is worse than the pain from the rape, and she screams when she sees the knife sticking out of her breast. The man cuts more into the breast, and it splits open, gushing blood onto the dirty carpet. She screams and screams, and the man is grinning. He is raping her from behind, so she falls down as she tries to defend herself. Her head is pushed into her own blood on the carpet, and she can see the woman is now holding her arms in front of her. It looks almost as if the girl is now kneeling in prayer. If it wasn't for her bleeding breast and a naked man with a knife raping her from behind... As the man climaxes, he jams the knife into her neck from the side. Shock and adrenaline racks the girl's body, and with it extreme amounts of pain and fear. The man starts to saw her neck, and her screams turn to gurgles as he slashes through her esophagus. Blood flows down into her lungs, causing her to choke. When the knife reaches her spinal column, the man jimes the knife through, and all is darkness. I have, dear listener, tried to learn the names of the victims of this killer. Sadly, they are not available in any of the sources I have found. Only the name of the killer and his woman is known. Hajj Muhammad Mesfevi and his elderly accomplice Anna. All of Mesfevi's victims were mutilated with dagger cuts in order to stimulate his own fetishes. He also killed for money, even though most of it were trifling sums. We also know when the pair were finally stopped, in June of 1906. The newspaper, the Times and Democrats, received on the 28th of June that year a cablegram from one of their foreign correspondents detailing how Mesfevi had been executed. It was this Mesfevi who was to have been crucified for his serial killings. Thirty-six times he had abducted women and girls, either by assaulting them in the dark streets or by holding them by force as they visited his cobbler shop or when visiting him in his capacity as a public letter. Writer. The woman Anna, who lived with him and assisted him in all manners, was seventy years old when police finally came to their door. The police tortured Anna, as was customary in 1906 Morocco, until she gave a detailed confession. She told of how girls had come to dictate letters, were treated to drugged wine, and then beheaded by a knife. Twenty decapitated bodies were found in a deep pit under the shop 
and sixteen more buried in the garden. Anna was exposed to such extreme torture that she died from her injuries. Faced with similar torture and overwhelming evidence, Mesfevi confessed to his crimes. The newspaper wrote how, and I quote, by ancient Moorish custom, he was to be executed by crucifixion. What the American newspaper referred to was, of course, Sharia law, which dictates the following from the Quran, Surah 533, and I quote, Those who wage war against Allah and his messenger and strive to spread corruption in the land should be punished by death, crucifixion, the amputation of an alternate hand and foot, or banishment from the land, a disgrace for them in this world, and then a terrible punishment in the hereafter. End quote. This surah has then been interpreted by Islamic scholars and jurors. One of the most prominent of these is Ibn Rushd. He was a judge, medical doctor, and scientist. He mostly lived in Spain until his death in 1198. Spain was mostly ruled by Islam from the 8th century until the 15th. His two-volume book, The Distinguished Jurist's Primer, took over 20 years to write. Ibn Rushd provides a foundation in Islamic law for judges and legal scholars throughout the Islamic world, where it is still used to this day. Ibn Rushd says that the punishment in Surah 533 are applied as follows. 1. If the criminals commit murder, they are to be put to death, either by execution or crucifixion. 2. If the criminals stole property but did not murder, then the penalty is exile, but the judge has the discretionary authority to execute, crucify, or amputate the alternate hand and foot. 3. The least punishment for criminals is flogging and exile, depending on the circumstances. So, crucifixion was rarely used in late 19th, early 20th century Marrakech, but it was not unheard of. But by 1906, foreign powers, and by that I mean the European colonial powers, had a strong presence in Morocco. Mesfevi's crucifixion was set for the 2nd of May 1906, but was abandoned because of interference from foreign powers being outraged by the usage of such a method of execution. Instead, it was announced that Mesfevi would be beheaded. This would prove to be a ruse by the Moroccan authorities and they instead decided to execute Mesfevi by immurement. Mesfevi was kept in the Marrakech jail until foreign attention was drawn elsewhere. On the 15th of May, his public torture would commence. Every day he was led by his jailers to the bazaar, the central marketplace, and stretched across a wooden chopping block. His jailers held his arms outstretched, while the city executioner started the punishment. He was flogged with branches of the thorny acacia, more commonly known as the gum arabic tree. Ten lashes were given each day, 
and each stroke drew blood. The number of strokes was kept down because Mesfevi was by then an old man, and the people of Marrakech was not about to let him die easily. After each flogging, Mesfevi's back was toughened and anointed with vinegar and oil so that he might be fit for the next day's ordeal. So the daily whippings went on, and when it was seen that despite all care, Mesfevi was falling into unconsciousness from the lashings, it was decided to carry out the supreme sentence. This was that he be walled up alive in the middle of the bazaar. Such a severe sentence demanded the signature of the sultan, which had been given. The officials of Marrakech knew the sentence would not be interfered with. The day of the execution was set for Monday, the 11th of June, 1906. The news of the execution had been spread, and the marketplace was thronged with thousands of Moroccans who squatted in the blazing sunlight and waited for the show to commence. A death by walling up alive had not been seen in Marrakech for several years, but there were those who told others that victims had been known sometimes to live for a whole week before dying. Just outside the jail where Mesfevi was confined stood the main bazaar. It has thick walls, and in one of these, facing the market, two masons dug a hole six feet high, two feet wide, and two feet deep. Mesfevi was very thin, and these dimensions gave the doomed man some room to move and some air to breathe. Again, the idea was that his suffering were to be as drawn out as possible. About three feet in the back wall, two staples with chains were fixed in the back of the recess in the wall, and two more staples with chains were attached. The purpose of these was to keep the victim erect, so that he might not huddle down out of sight of the crowd. Mesfevi had not been told of his fate, and when he was brought out of the prison on Monday morning, he thought he was being led forth to his daily whipping. As soon as he saw the expectant thousands, however, and heard their howls of hate, he knew that his day had come. Then he saw the hole dug in the wall, and he immediately knew what that meant. He had taken his whippings with fatalistic fortitude, hoping he might die under the thorns, but when he was dragged toward the upright tomb, he struggled with his jailers and screamed for mercy. Screaming, he was thrust into the recess in the thick wall, and, still screaming, he was chained up. There he was left for a while, for there was plenty of time. The masons stood aside, and the crowd struggled and fought to get in the front ranks. They scoffed in derision at a screaming man and pelted him with the filth and offal of the marketplace. Then the masons again came forward and very deliberately laid on the first courses of the masonry. The stones and mortar rose to Mesfevi's knees, and then the chief jailer came forward and gave him bread and water. The masons again stood aside, 
and again the crowds jeered and threw awful at Miss Fevy. So it went on, course by course, stone by stone, water and bread, until only Miss Fevy's screaming head was seen. The last stones were thrust in place, and his living tomb was completed. The crowd was not satisfied, and the throng pressed forward and kept quiet to hear the muffled screams for mercy that came out of the wall. Every time Miss Fevy screamed, the crowd cheered. Nighttime came, braziers were lit, coffee was made, and still Miss Fevy screamed, and the crowds cheered. Tuesday, the 12th of June, came, and the bazaar was as crowded as ever. Miss Fevy was still screaming for mercy. So it went on all day and all night. When Wednesday broke, those close up to the wall reported that the man inside was only moaning. Finally, the moaning stopped, and the crowd cursed Miss Fevy for dying so soon. Then the delayed business of the bazaar was resumed. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. And thus, we come to the end of the arch-murderer of Marrakech, Hajj Muhammad Mesfevi. I hoped you enjoyed listening to me telling the story to you. Next episode, number 162 in number, will feature a brand new serial killer expose. So as they say in the land of radio, stay tuned. Finally, I wish to thank you, dear listener, for listening. If you like this podcast, you can support it by donating on patreon.com slash theserialkillerpodcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, facebook.com slash theskpodcast, or by posting on the subreddit theskpodcast. Thank you. Good night, and good luck.